You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that the life of Jesus Christ is not a, a triumph, but a humiliation. Not a success, but a failure. It's such a surprising thing to hear a theologian say. You might expect a Christian theologian to say something like, the life of an unbeliever is not a success but a failure. Or maybe even the life of the average American Christian is a failure. But to say the life of Jesus Christ is a failure is something really startling. But make no mistake about it, Karl Barth understands that it is a sign of great grace that this is the case. Barth knows that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has a perspective through time. And with that perspective, Barth says, God knows that failure will be our business. We'll choose it. And so God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to make failure his business. So that need no longer be ours. Well, if you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at the topic of failure through the eyes of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Today we look at failure uh, in, in a very personal way. In the experience of relationship. Broken and failed and strained relationships. What does Jesus Christ have to say about this failure? Well, I'd invite you to open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, verses 14 through 21. You'll find that on page 940 of our Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. For the love of Christ urges us on. Because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ... There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word never will. Please be seated. The first thing I want to say uh, this morning is that 
All relationships are spiritual. All relationships are spiritual. I know you might say, "Ah, I'm not a very spiritual person. But you are. God has made you that way, and the Bible uses every opportunity it gets to convince us that between you and your coworker, between you and your spouse, between you and your neighbor, there is a living God, and he's part of the relationship. All relationships are spiritual. I love this passage because, you know, if you look at the Bible, there are lots of stories about bad relationships. I mean, lots of stories in the Bible about really bad relationships. And there's a lot of teaching in the Bible about how to have a good relationship. There's a lot of wisdom uh, in the Bible. What I love about this text is it's written by a guy in the middle of a bad relationship. The, The Apostle Paul right now is experiencing relational failure. And from that vantage point, he wants to say something about good relationships and what God does in the midst of our relational failure. He he knows that God is in this relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. He, He says, there's something about my life now that I have a sense. The love of Christ is urging me, is controlling me, is impelling me, he says in verse 14. Jesus Christ is in this relationship. When the apostle Paul first met Jesus, he was a rabbi. He was the great rabbi Saul of Tarsus. He travels along the road to Damascus, and uh, though a rabbi, like a university professor, is pretty set in his convictions, he sees something that turns his world upside down. The very object of his persecuting wrath stands before him in resurrection glory, Jesus Christ. And when Paul sees that, he knows what the story is all about. He looks at the one who has become failure for him. He looks at the one who has risen out of the grave for him. Possibly the clearest statement, the briefest statement of the good news of Jesus Christ is offered to us right in this passage that we just read. In verse 15, Paul stands there face to face to Jesus and he realizes, and here the weight is borne by the preposition for, he died for all. For me. He died. He failed. For me. So that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him and was raised for them. See, Him who died and was raised for us. There's something about that experience that immediately has implications for the relationships, uh, for the friendships of the Apostle Paul, and he senses it right then and there. And so the structure of this text, and indeed the next two points that I want to make, uh, pick up on imp- consequences, implications of the failure of God in Jesus Christ, his death, and the success of God I- I- visible in Jesus' resurrection. Following right from verse 15, the Apostle Paul says there are two consequences, and I'm living them right now in the midst of relational failure. It's a little hard to see these two consequences because our NRSV gives us two different translations for the same Greek word. But 16 and 17 in the original language begin with the same word, so, like as in so what. Beautiful expression, Paul. Jesus died for us and he rose for us, but I got problems. 
I'm struggling in a very real way of the relationship. And Paul says, wait a minute. So and so these two implications. The first one is a negation. So not what? And the second is an affirmation. So what? Let's look at verse 16, the negation first. And here the point that I hope uh, you, you might remember is that relationships never look the way they're supposed to look. They never, relationships never look the way they are supposed to look. And, and so Paul says, so what I learned on the road to Damascus is that I regard no one from a human point of view. Now, I don't know. We don't know what that point of view might have been for Paul or for the Corinthians. We know they're in a fight. Uh, we suggest that probably there's some expectations that an apostle might have of the congregation he founds. And there are some expectations that a congregation founded by an apostle might have of that apostle. And they're probably legitimate expectations and probably illegitimate expectations. But clearly their relationship is not looking the way either of them wants it to look right then and there. And Paul goes, you know what? I have learned to look no longer according to human perspective because I've seen Jesus differently. I might have seen him with human expectations. I might have seen him as the Messiah that would bring come with power and, and bring God's end time state right then and there. I might have seen him as the object of my persecuting wrath as I went trying to stamp out these pesky Christians who defile Judaism with their testimony of a risen Savior. It's impossible. He says all of those categories are just gone now. You and I have expectations about our relationships as well, don't we? All of them. We have expectations. And there are expectations. But oftentimes, they're not fulfilled. And we measure our success in relationship by our own expectations. I want to read to you from uh, Dave Barry. I don't know if you care for Dave Barry, but he's, uh, this is one of my favorite, uh, some of, uh, favorite article. And so just bear with me if you can't stand it. But I think it's about relationships. <laughs> okay, Barry writes, let's say a guy named Roger is attracted to a woman named Elaine. He asks her to a movie. She accepts. They have a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out to dinner, and again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly, and after a while, neither one of them is seeing anyone else. One evening, as they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine. Without really thinking, she says it aloud. Do you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there's a silence in the car. To Elaine, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, gee, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger is thinking, gosh, six months. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine thinks, but hey, I'm not so sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about whether I really want us to keep going the way we are, moving steadily toward, I mean, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? Are we heading toward marriage, toward children, toward a lifetime together? Am I ready for that level of commitment? Do I really even know this person? And Roger is thinking, so that means it was, let's see, February. 
when we started going out, which was right after I had the car at the dealer's, which means, let me check the odometer. Whoa, I am way overdue for an oil change here. <laughs> Elaine thinks he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he has sensed, even before I sensed it, that I was feeling some reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his own feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Roger's thinking, I'm going to have them look at the transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. It's not shifting right. And they'd better not blame it on the cold weather this time. What cold weather? It's 87 degrees out, and this thing is shifting like a garbage truck. And I paid those incompetent thieves $600. Elaine thinks, he's angry. <laughs> I don't blame him. I'd be angry, too. I feel so guilty putting him through this. But I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. And Roger's thinking, They'll probably say it's only a 90-day warranty. That's exactly what they're going to say, the rats. Elaine thinks, maybe I'm just too idealistic, waiting for some knight to come riding up on his white horse when I'm sitting right next to a perfectly good person, a person I enjoy being with, a person I truly do care about, a person who seems to truly care about me, a person who is in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Roger's thinking, warranty. They want a warranty. I'll give them a warranty. I'll take their warranty and stick it right up there. Roger, Elaine says aloud. What? Roger says, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says. Her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe I should never have. I feel so. She breaks down sobbing. What? says Roger. I'm such a fool, Elaine sobs. I mean, I know there's no knight. I really know that. It's silly. There's no knight and there's no horse. There's no horse, says Roger. You think I'm a fool, don't you, says Elaine. No, says Roger, glad to finally know the correct answer. It's just that, it's that I, I need some time, Elaine says. There is a 15-second pause while Roger, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response. Finally, he comes up with one he thinks might work. Yes, he says. <clears throat> Elaine, deeply moved, touches his hand. Oh, Roger, do you really feel that way? She says, what way, says Roger. <laughs> that way about time, says Elaine. Oh, says Roger, yes. Elaine turns to him, face him, and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous about what she might say next, especially if it involves horses. At last she speaks. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, says Roger. <laughs> then he takes her home. She lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps until dawn. Whereas Roger, when he gets back to his place, opens a bag of Doritos, turns on the TV, and immediately becomes deeply involved in a rerun of a tennis match between two Czechs he never heard of. A tiny voice in the far recesses of his mind tells him that something major was going on back there in the car, but he's pretty sure there's no way he would ever understand what, and so he figures it's probably better if he doesn't think about it. This is also Roger's policy regarding world hunger. 
The next day, Elaine will call her closest friend, or perhaps two of them, and they will talk about the situation for six straight hours in painstaking detail. They will analyze everything she said, everything he said, going it over time and time again, exploring every word, expression, and gesture for nuances of meaning, considering every possible ramification. They'll continue to discuss this subject off and on for weeks, maybe months, never reaching any definite conclusions, but never getting bored with it either. Meanwhile, Roger, while playing racquetball one day with a mutual friend of his and Elaine's, will pause just before serving, frown and say, Norm, did Elaine ever own a horse? <laughs> Gosh, it's funny because we've all been there. Um, what expectations are you bringing to your relationship? I tell you, it's a painful conversation in the car, but not half as painful as the one that Paul is in right now. Remember we saw in chapter 2, he visited this beloved congregation founded just almost five years prior, and someone stands up and dresses him down. There's a huge flight, a fight right on the floor of the church meeting. Big, and, and Paul goes, I'm not taking this, and he slams the door. We know that gesture, don't we? He walks out, he takes off, and they go, that's just what we would expect of a coward apostle. will not even debate with us. You're going to probably write us a letter. You bet I'm going to write you a letter. He writes out this letter. It's the painful letter, and he sends it off. And He's right in the middle of a failing relationship. And yet the first thing he says is, you know, I've just learned to let go of these expectations. Relationships never look the way they're supposed to look. And in fact, it's the effort to make them look that way that oftentimes is so destructive in our relationships. You really only have three options with your relationships, right? You can tune them up, which would really result in killing them. Trying to make them look like the way you want them to look will eventually destroy the relationship. You can, uh, if you kill them, you can also just uh, fake them. You can put on a facade, you can come to church, you can go to work, and you can just pretend everything is okay. And you will hollow out on the inside. Or you can just leave them behind. You can just go from relationship to relationship or finally just say, I don't need relationships at all and live in isolation. Well, the second thing we learn is this, that we can live. Uh, this is really the third point. Second uh, uh, consequence of the death and resurrection of Christ is that we can live with the reconciliation of eternity today. We can live with the reconciliation of eternity today. Verse 17, the second so what? So, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Do you see the possibilities for your relationships in that simple verse. New creation, Paul says. Now, some translations render that new creature. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature, which is true, but it doesn't say enough. Paul is saying something even more sweeping and global than that. He's not just speaking of you as an individual. He's speaking of an experience the whole cosmos is participating in. In, with Jesus' death and resurrection. <laughs> when he looks at Jesus risen from the dead, he says, wow, new creation. 
In fact, that's the language here in, in, in the Greek. It, it literally, is just truncated. It says, so if anyone is in Christ, new creation is what Paul says. just goes right to it. New creation, that's what I see in the resurrection of, of Jesus. Well, we'd have to know something about Paul to know the significance of those two words. Remember, as I said, he was a rabbi, but he was also a Pharisee. What the first century rabbis knew in Israel was that the Messiah was coming and he would bring the final days, the great age, that age in which God would wipe away every tear. He would reconcile Israel to himself, reconcile every man to his neighbor, and uh, reconcile even the beasts of the field as the wolf and the lamb will feed together. This vision of the coming age was impressed on the minds and hearts of the rabbis of first century Judaism. And so they would read the 8th century prophet Isaiah and they would use the same kind of language that Paul's using right here. Do you hear the echoes? Isaiah 42, just like Paul says, See, the former things have come to pass. Isaiah 43 The Lord says, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. And then Isaiah 65, the Lord says, for I am about to create new heavens, new earth, a new creation. So the rabbi Saul immediately sees something profound. Why? Well, because he was a Pharisee. And and, and one thing we know about the Pharisees is that they distinguished themselves by a belief in the resurrection from the dead. Remember the debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? They believed that the new age would come with a resurrection from the dead, physical resurrection. So they would read Isaiah and other places, like 25, verse 8, where Isaiah says, He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Isaiah 26, 19 by the way, Isaiah 25, 8 is what Paul is quoting when he's writing on the resurrection in chapter 15 of his first letter to the Corinthians. But here, Isaiah 26, 19, the Lord says, your dead shall live. Their corpses shall rise. O oh, dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is radiant dew and the earth will give birth to those long dead. Paul says, I think I see it. I, I think I, I just met the new creation today. And i got to believe that's got a consequence for every single one of my relationships. Relationships with people I love, relationships with people I can't stand, relationships with people that I really want to love on some days and I'm not so sure on other days. The reconciliation of the final age has come. As dramatic as the first creation was, out of darkness, formless and void, there's a new creation afoot. God is creating again. Not an Adam and Eve in perfect relationship, but a, but a Jesus, a Saul, a Becky, a Robert, a Rupert, us, Corinthians. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. This is instant relevance to our relationships. Even though the Messiah comes once and then returns later to consummate what he begins. 
thinking about how I could understand this, um, I'm a little embarrassed to share this with you. It's a little bit odd, but let me take some time to talk to you about Hogan's Heroes and then come back to the point. Um, uh, recently, my family checked out a box set from the Seattle Public Library. We've been enjoying old uh, episodes of Hogan's Heroes. I didn't watch a lot of TV as a kid, so that usually meant I was home from school sick. Uh, but that's a great show. Uh, and, but as, as we're watching this, uh, I'm thinking, how, how could a producer ever, ever come to a, a TV studio and suggest, I got a great idea? You know, would you, would you like to be that sales guy? He comes and says, hey, what we're going to do is a comedy. It's just going to be so funny. You're going to laugh your socks off. We're going to set it in a Nazi prison of war camp. You like that? You go, how, how could you ever sell a concept? How could anybody ever laugh at something like that? Well, I was, I was talking to one of our staff, uh, Steve Eldy, about this, and it was interesting. He knew something that I didn't know. Did you know that the, the actor who plays Colonel Klink, uh, Werner Klemperer, was a Jew. He was the son of Otto, the, the great conductor, who ha- they, their family had to leave Europe under persecution, and he ended up conducting the L.A. Philharmonic. Did you know that Sergeant Schultz, the uh, portly uh, Nazi uh, enforcer there, John, played by John Banner, John Banner was also a Jew, and his family fled the Nazis. Did you know that the petite Frenchman Corporal Lebeau, the dark hair, the cook, played by Robert Clary, was also a Jew. And he was in a um, Buchenwald with 12 close family members. And he was the only one to survive the camp. How could they, just 20 years after the end of the war, this is coming out in 1965, do this? Well, I think it has to do with seeing through time. You see, they couldn't have done that in 1944. No one would have laughed. But in 1965, we know how that conflict ends, don't we? And even though we're transported back in time through the drama, we see a set of characters, none of whom want to be there. None of whom feel the pain of, all of whom feel the pain of the context, including, including the two main German characters, Schultz and Klink. Klink has got these kind of these he dotes over Stalag 13 like it were a bed and breakfast or a Motel 6. He's hoping to get another star from AAA. He's got this kind of cheer, you know, every time the, uh, Stal- the uh, 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 Gestapo calls. You know, he's, hello, so nice to talk to you. And, <laughs> and they shut up, we're in a war, you know. And their attitudes are subversive. They're living in light of a reality that hasn't obtained yet. In 1944. But through the perspective of time, we know that the spirit of victory, the spirit of peace, the spirit of reconciliation will descend on Europe. And in the same way, I think that Paul, when he sees the risen Jesus Christ, is able to see through time. Even though in this age, relationships are continue to defy our expectations, continue to feel broken and bereft of the value we hope to inject them with and receive from them. We can know with the Apostle Paul that Jesus' death and resurrection, his failure and his success ensures for us the strength, inspires in us the courage to go back into those places of darkness again and again and again. It's not just a second chance, friends. 
It's the imposition of the end-time reality working its way out in our relationships. That's what the church is all about. It's a community that dares to live in the presence of the one who died and rises. It's precisely in the church that we can live with disappointed expectations and broken relationships. But it's precisely in the church of Jesus Christ that we can also live with great hope for our relationships. We can see partnerships mended. We can see marriages restored. We can see a father's heart turned back to his son, and we do. Have you ever wondered why you have the biggest fight of the week right before coming to church? I mean, am I alone in that? Right? Hurry up! We're going to church! And then we go, we're going to church. Oh, yeah. Come, sweetie. Um, And it seems kind of incongruous. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. This is exactly the place where we can be real. The Apostle Paul got into a fight on his way to church. We read in Acts chapter 15, just before the second missionary journey. He wants to go on, and he wants to go on with his colleague Barnabas. Let's go. And he'll end up, by the way, in Corinth. On his way to Corinth, the Apostle Paul gets in a fight with Barnabas because Barnabas says, I'd like to bring along my younger cousin, John Mark, if you don't mind. And Paul, the Apostle, the great Christian leader, he says, not John Mark. He's an idiot. (laughs) Guy writes a gospel, but never mind, you know. (laughs) And, And Barnabas gets in a fight the son of encouragement, uh, with the Apostle Paul, and they part ways. But Paul holds on to that vision of new creation, and he hangs in there with John Mark, evidence of which is seen at the end of the letter to Colossians, where there's a little bit of a postscript at the end, and the Apostle Paul says, Hey, greetings from my friend, John Mark. If he comes, will you receive him? And then at the very end of his life, the Apostle Paul in Rome, in prison, desperate for some comfort, has to write Timothy and say, Timothy, would you send John Mark to be with me? For he is very important to my ministry. Do you see the heart of the Apostle Paul expanding in the love of Jesus Christ? Let's pray for that also. Lord, you are, you are starting to convince us that your death is for our failure and that your life is for our hope. Open up our hearts to Christ. Convince us that we're reconciled to you and that you don't count our transgressions against us. You look at us, you see the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And it's that reality as it is unfolding in our lives, as we see through time to the way things will ultimately be, it gives us the strength, Lord. So give us the strength. Put upon our minds a person you want us to love this week, a person who's hard to love this week. And give us the faith and the very love of Jesus Christ to go again into that relationship with new hope. Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.